0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Jamie. Before we get started, I want to remind you that Season 2 of Scene of the Crime podcast launches on October 14th, which I'm going to be narrating. We're covering a crazy, crazy case this season, and you won't want to miss it. If you're not sick of hearing my voice, do me a favor and subscribe to Scene of the Crime podcast right now so you don't miss the launch on October 14th. There's another podcast by the same name, so make sure you subscribe to the one that has yellow crime scene tape in the logo. That's Scene of the Crime Season 2. Alright, let's get into today's case. In the early 1980s, a single mother was living a quiet life in Southern California. She'd wake up each day, put in hours of work at her two jobs, and then go straight home to be with her young son. Her life was quiet and uneventful until it wasn't. Unbeknownst to the young mother, someone was watching her. Soon she began receiving frightening phone calls, and it became clear that she had an obsessed stalker. Her simple life was turned upside down and tragically would end in her murder. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the mysterious murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. takes us to Anaheim, California, which is located in Southern California, just beneath Los Angeles. Anaheim is home to the world-famous tourist attraction Disneyland, an idyllic place to call home. Many celebrities live in the town. Beautiful scenery, year-round warm weather, and quiet suburbs nested in the hills make Anaheim a perfect place to raise a family. For one young woman, however, The picturesque environment could not keep her safe from a predator, who had developed an unhealthy obsession with her. August 6th of 1984 began as a normal workday for one unnamed construction worker. He was preparing land for a building that was about 30 feet away from Santa Ana Canyon Road. To prepare for the incoming construction, The land needed to be cleared of brush. Two years prior, a brush fire had swept across the plot of land, so the site needed to be cleared of anything that could pose a fire danger. As the construction worker began clearing an area, he looked down and noticed something odd. Lying in front of him were several charred bones. Knowing about the previous brush fire, He assumed this was the skeleton of wildlife that had been overtaken by flames. The worker began digging up the bones one by one, eventually finding the skull of what appeared to be a dog. Slightly relieved to confirm the skeleton was that of an animal, the man continued digging further to ensure that he had cleared all of the bones. As he continued digging, he realized there seemed to be an alarming amount of bones making him question whether they were from a dog. Some of the bones seemed quite larger than that of a medium-sized animal. Then, as he continued digging, the worker became aware that this was not a dog. These were human remains. The construction worker immediately notified his supervisor, and the authorities were alerted to the grisly discovery. Local police were dispatched to the scene to investigate further and recover all of the remains. Upon further examination, it was discovered that the human remains had been buried underneath a dog. Unfortunately, a complete human skeleton was not able to be recovered. The only bones found were the person's skull, pelvis, two femurs, and one arm bone. The remains were also found to be slightly charred, indicating that the body had likely been buried before the brush fire that happened two years prior. Among the human and dog remains, two other items were found, a turquoise ring and a watch. The time on the watch was stopped on May 29, 1980 at 12.30 a.m., a timestamp more than four years before the discovery of remains. The bones were transferred to a medical examiner to determine the identity of the human remains and how this person died. There was nothing at the gravesite that would reveal the identity of the person, and the body was almost fully decomposed. Because of this, the medical examiner relied on dental records to identify the remains. It was revealed that the remains were that of a woman named Dorothy Jane Scott, who'd been missing for four years which tied in with the date and time the watch had stopped on. Born on April 23, 1948, to two loving parents, Jacob and Vera Scott, Dorothy's childhood was filled with love and support, and by all accounts, she was a happy child. At the age of 28, Dorothy became pregnant by her boyfriend at the time, a man named Dennis. Despite having a child together, Dennis did not want to be a father and quickly moved to Missouri after learning about the pregnancy. Although she was going to be a single mother, Dorothy had a community around her who would be there to support her and her child. Dorothy soon gave birth to a baby boy who she named Sean Scott. The new mother and her son lived with Dorothy's aunt in Stanton, California, only 20 minutes away from Dorothy's parents' house in Anaheim. The young mother worked two jobs to help provide the best life possible for her son. She worked as a secretary for Custom John's Head Shop and Swinger's Psych Shop, two businesses owned by the same people and located relatively close together. Custom John's Head Shop sold anything related to smoking cannabis and tobacco. Swinger Psych Shop sold all types of psychedelic merchandise, from blacklight posters to incense burners. Dorothy's father, Jacob Scott, was a previous co-owner of the Head Shop. Dorothy's parents were incredibly supportive of their daughter and helped take care of Sean. Because Dorothy worked two jobs, Sean spent a lot of time with his grandparents. Although she often had to be away from her son to work, Dorothy was an incredibly devoted mother. Everyone who knew her loved her. She is constantly described as loving, caring, and giving. Friends and family members have said that Dorothy led a relatively quiet life. She wasn't into partying or going out with friends. She preferred being at home with her son and spending time with family. A devout Christian Dorothy attended church regularly and strived to live a life that would be in line with her Christian values. Dorothy constantly put everyone's needs in front of her own, and she was intentional about making sure others were cared for before worrying about herself. This was seen in more than just her relationship with her son. It was seen in every interaction Dorothy had with others. She worked hard and kept her head down, never getting into trouble. As she avoided most social events, Dorothy also rarely dated. There had been a couple of brief relationships after Sean was born, but nothing that lasted very long. Dorothy's primary focus was ensuring that she provided a good quality of life for her son. Her quiet life, however, was about to change. Someone was watching Dorothy with dangerous intentions. After the human remains were connected to Dorothy Jane Scott in 1984, authorities realized that this was a murder that they had been investigating for four years. When Dorothy was first reported missing in 1980, the discovery of her remains sparked new interest in her case and the investigation picked back up. Authorities spoke with Dorothy's friends and family and according to their statements, prior to her going missing, Dorothy began receiving mysterious phone calls from a stranger who seemed to know a lot about her personal life. The man would call Dorothy while she was at work and at home. He would profess his love for Dorothy and eerily, he would describe intimate details of her daily life, including what she was wearing or what she was doing at the time of his calls. Terrified by the phone calls, Dorothy confided in her family about them, although she never reported them to law enforcement. It is unknown why Dorothy chose not to report the issue to authorities. Perhaps she didn't want to overreact to what may be a harmless situation. Regardless of her reasoning, Dorothy continued to deal with her stalker alone. Well, October is here and I've got a game suggestion that will get you into the spooky spirit. Best Fiends is a really fun and challenging mobile puzzle game that I play while waiting in line for coffee, during commercial breaks, and whenever I get downtime. I find it so hard to put down, especially since my buddy Tyler said he's on a way higher level than I am, but that won't be the case for long, trust me." Best Fiends will keep your brain stimulated with over 5,000 challenges that are updated constantly. It's impossible to ever be bored again. Best Fiends keeps you company whenever you need it. The game has millions of five-star reviews. People love it. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. After binging so much true crime content, we all know that home security is a must. I recently installed Simply Safe at my house and it only took 30 minutes. I installed window sensors, a security camera, and motion sensor, and it was beyond easy. No technician required. Now I have professional monitoring round the clock and police, fire, or medical professionals at the ready if need be. And here's the bonus. With SimpliSafe, there are no contracts, no pushy salespeople, and no hidden fees. And you can get started for only fifteen dollars per month. I feel so much more secure knowing that my home is protected by Simply Safe, and that is a priceless feeling. Head to simplysafe.com/murderish and get a free HD camera for my listeners. That's simplysafe.com/murderish to make sure they know that my show sent you. One of the most terrifying aspects of the calls was that Dorothy said the voice sounded familiar, but she couldn't quite place it. Each time the man called, she tried desperately to figure out how she knew the voice, but she would fall short of identifying it every time. Though the phone calls started out with compliments and professions of love, it seemed the man had a temper that could escalate quickly. At one moment, The voice on the phone would describe how beautiful Dorothy looked in the outfit she had worn that day. Seconds later, however, the unknown man would threaten to murder her if she did not return his love and affection. Despite the progression, Dorothy still only told her family about the calls, calls that continued almost daily. On one occasion, Dorothy got a call from her stalker who told her that he had something for her. He instructed her to go outside so he could give her a gift. Not seeing anyone outside who could approach her, Dorothy stood outside on the front porch. As she surveyed her surroundings, something out of place caught her eye. Sitting on the windshield of her car, which was parked in her driveway, was a single dead rose. Dorothy was petrified, thinking that the man could be close by. She immediately went inside the house and locked all of her doors. A few weeks into receiving the phone calls, Dorothy began taking karate classes. She wanted to be prepared to defend herself if need be. She also considered buying a gun and spoke with a few family members and co-workers about it, asking what she should know if she decided to buy a firearm. Ultimately, it appeared as though Dorothy decided against buying a gun. She did, however, continue taking karate classes right up until her disappearance. The chilling phone calls continued coming in. Dorothy's stalker would go back and forth between complimenting and threatening her. One call in particular rattled Dorothy more than the others. Dorothy's mother Vera told authorities that her daughter spoke with her about this particularly concerning phone call. Dorothy told her mother that her stalker was much more agitated during this call, seemingly impatient with her. Out of anger, the voice on the phone said, When I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so that no one will ever find you. Dorothy became even more frightened of her stalker and worked tirelessly to ensure that she and her son were safe. Despite this, Dorothy could not stop working, she had to work in order to support Sean. So, she continued on with her typical days, though trying to remain more vigilant and aware of her surroundings. Phone calls from her stalker were becoming almost routine for Dorothy after a few weeks. This was sort of a new normal, although the situation was not normal by any means. It was now May of 1980, and the calls had been going on for months. On May 28th, Dorothy had an after-hours staff meeting, meaning she would have to stay at work late. Prior to the meeting, Dorothy dropped Sean, now four years old, off at her parents' house. She told them she would be back to pick him up later that evening. The staff meeting was largely uneventful, that is, until Dorothy noticed that her co-worker, Conrad Bostran, didn't look as though he was feeling well. Not only did he appear sickly, Dorothy also noticed a rather large rash on his arm which was turning a bright red color. Conrad needed medical attention, so Dorothy offered to take him to the hospital. Thinking that she may need help if his condition worsened, another co-worker named Pam Head volunteered to come along. Conrad and Pam got into Dorothy's car and she began driving the three of them towards the hospital, which coincidentally, was also in the direction of Dorothy's parents' house. Not wanting her parents or her son to worry about her being late, Dorothy stopped by their house on the way to the hospital. She quickly ran inside to let her parents know what was happening, and then she ran back outside to the car. It is important to note that when she ran inside the house, Dorothy was wearing a black scarf. When she ran back outside to the car, oddly, Dorothy was wearing a red scarf. After notifying her parents that she would more than likely have a late night at the hospital, Dorothy took Conrad to the UC Irvine Medical Center only a few miles away. While their coworker was being treated, Pam and Dorothy sat in the waiting room patiently. When asked later about their time in the waiting room, Pam told authorities that they had been together the entire time and that Dorothy was never out of her sight. Eventually, medical staff informed Dorothy and Pam that Conrad had been bitten by a black widow spider and that the bite would need to be treated before he could be released. Pam and Dorothy continued waiting for their coworker in the hospital waiting room. It was around 11 p.m. when Conrad was discharged from the hospital with a prescription in hand. At this time, Dorothy told Pam that she needed to go to the restroom. Dorothy said to Pam that after she used the restroom, she would pull the car around so Conrad wouldn't have to walk so far, since he still wasn't feeling well. Dorothy told Pam to take Conrad to get his prescription filled at the front counter, and then meet her outside at the front of the hospital. Pam recalled that it only took about five minutes for Conrad's prescription to be filled. Then they went outside and waited for Dorothy to pull the car around. Pam wasn't worried when 10 minutes passed without seeing Dorothy pull up. She figured it would have taken at least 10 minutes to go to the restroom and then walk out to the car. However, after 15 minutes had passed, Pam began to feel a bit worried. After 20 minutes, Pam's slight worry grew to outright concern. In the midst of considering everything that could have happened to Dorothy, Pam was relieved when she saw Dorothy's white 1973 Toyota station wagon driving towards them. Her relief, however, turned to confusion when Pam noticed that the car was driving way too fast in the parking lot and it wasn't slowing down as it approached them. Attempting to look into the car to see if Dorothy was okay, Pam strained her eyes and tried looking into the driver's seat, but the high beams were on. Which blinded Pam and made it impossible to see into the car. Surprisingly, Dorothy's car sped past Pam and Conrad and then took a sharp right turn out of the parking lot. This all happened in a matter of seconds. Neither Pam nor Conrad could recall seeing a driver because of the bright lights. Given this, there was no way to know whether Dorothy was driving the car. After that confusing moment in the hospital parking lot, Dorothy was never seen alive again. Many thoughts raced through Pam's mind after she saw Dorothy's car leaving in such a hurry. Her first thought was that on her way to go to the restroom, Dorothy may have called home and learned that there was an emergency relating to her son. This would obviously cause Dorothy to drop anything she was doing and race to his side. This, to Pam, seemed like the most likely scenario. Because of this, Pam and Conrad decided that they could wait for a little while to see if Dorothy would come back to pick them up at the hospital. The two of them waited for a little over an hour before deciding that Dorothy likely was not coming back for them. Pam then called Dorothy's parents to ask if they knew where she was. Pam explained to Jacob and Vera Scott that Dorothy had driven off frantically without any explanation and that she assumed something happened with Sean. The Scots, however, told Pam that they had not seen their daughter since she told them that she was going to the hospital. At that point, Conrad and Pam called the police. Because Dorothy was an adult, Law enforcement were not incredibly concerned about the situation. Possibly thinking that Dorothy had simply had enough of being a hard-working single mother and made a getaway, there wasn't much effort put forward by police to figure out where she had gone. It wasn't until 4.30 the next morning that police would begin taking the situation more seriously. Early on the morning of May 29, 1980, Only 10 miles from the hospital where Dorothy was last seen, a white 1973 Toyota station wagon was discovered engulfed in flames. The vehicle was confirmed to be Dorothy's, however, there was no sign of her. Immediately, search parties were dispatched, but their attempts would not prove fruitful. No trace of Dorothy could be found. Jacob and Vera Scott feared the worst at this point. Their daughter's disappearance was preceded by months of strange phone calls, and the Scots began putting two and two together. They told police about their daughter's stalker, but for the time being, authorities focused their efforts on finding Dorothy and not her stalker. Several days later, Dorothy's parents' worst fears were realized when they received a call that would be any parent's worst nightmare. Jacob and Vera were at home waiting for news about Dorothy when the phone rang. Hoping for good news, Vera answered the phone expectantly. When she picked up, the male caller asked, Are you related to Dorothy Scott? Vera answered simply, Yes. The voice on the other end of the phone then stated, I've got her, and then hung up. Immediately, Vera notified police of the call. However, not much could be done at the time. Police told Jacob and Vera not to speak with anyone about the phone call or even about the disappearance of their daughter. Authorities were worried that giving the press inside information would lead to a rush of false confessions using information that could be found within media reports. The Scots agreed not to talk to the press, however. After a full week with no new information or leads, Jacob lost his patience and reached out to the Santa Ana Register newspaper. He was extremely frustrated and determined to get his daughter's story out in the public to garner new leads. The Santa Ana Register ran a story covering Dorothy's disappearance, which included mention of a $2,000 reward for anyone who could help find her, dead or alive. On the day the story ran, Pat Riley, the newspaper editor, received a mysterious phone call. Pat Riley's phone had been ringing all day, typical for a newspaper editor. However, this call was much different. The voice on the other end chillingly said to Riley, I killed her. The voice paused and Riley waited, stunned. The man on the other line continued, saying, I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. Riley sat in silence as the voice on the phone continued to give details of the night Dorothy disappeared to prove he was, in fact, her killer. The man mentioned that Dorothy had taken her co worker to the hospital specifically for a black widow spider bite, something that had not been made public. The man on the phone claimed that Dorothy had called him from the hospital to tell him everything. He also mentioned that Dorothy began her day wearing a black scarf, but ended up at the hospital wearing a red scarf, once again a bit of information that was never mentioned in the news. The call to Pat Riley was beyond baffling for Dorothy's family and investigators alike. Those close to Dorothy knew that she was not dating anyone at the time, and that she definitely would not have the heart to cheat on anyone if she was. Not only was Dorothy not interested in dating, she hardly had time for one, much less two romantic involvements. Pam Head, the coworker who had gone along to take Conrad to the hospital, recalled that there was never a point that she saw Dorothy use the payphone, unless she did it while going to get her car. There was no doubt that the mysterious caller had been in close contact with Dorothy in between her arriving at the hospital and being abducted. He provided details that were so precise and unique, and this totally confused everyone. Based on his factual comments, the man became suspect number one in Dorothy's case. Meanwhile, his identity remained unknown. It was clear that the man had created a fantastical world around his obsession with Dorothy and that the things he believed to be true did not line up with reality. Search efforts for Dorothy continued in earnest, but based on the phone call Pat Riley received, hope dwindled for her safe return. Dorothy's stalker and possible murderer got off on tormenting those close to his victim. Vera Scott was home alone on a Wednesday afternoon a few weeks after Dorothy's disappearance when she received a phone call. Not expecting to hear the voice of her daughter's abductor again, she was shaken to her core when she heard the mysterious voice on her phone once again. He was taunting her, saying that he had Dorothy and that she belonged to him now. Devastated, Vera called authorities immediately to report that once again, The unknown man had called her, and those calls kept coming. Every Wednesday afternoon, like clockwork, the phone would ring. Vera would be home alone, and she would answer the phone, desperate to learn more about where her daughter might be. The voice on the other end of the line taunted Vera incessantly. Sometimes he asked if Dorothy was home. Other times he told Vera that he had killed her daughter and sometimes he would claim that he was holding her hostage. When it was apparent that Dorothy's suspected abductor had a pattern of calling Vera Scott, police began attempting to trace the call each Wednesday afternoon. Unfortunately, the caller never stayed on the phone long enough for a trace to be made. Despite never having a call long enough to trace, Vera held out hope that one day the caller would slip and stay on the phone for just a second too long or say something that would give investigators something, anything, that would lead to getting Dorothy home safe. Vera continued answering the calls from her daughter's abductor every Wednesday afternoon, and she did this for more than four years. Just as the suspect's calls became a new normal for Dorothy, his tormenting calls also became a new, twisted normal for Vera Scott. For years, I'd go to my corporate job and wish I did not have to wear uncomfortable work pants that dug into my sides, and overall just suck." Betabrand has solved that problem with their dress pant yoga pants. These pants feel just like comfy yoga pants, but they look like professional work pants. Dress pant yoga pants don't wrinkle easily. And the fit is perfection. When you get home from work, you'll forget you're even still wearing work clothes because these pants feel so cozy. I've been wearing skinny-style dress pant yoga pants and always feel so good in them. I've completely broken up with my old work pants and upgraded to dress pant yoga pants. Right now, my listeners can get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash murderish. That's 25% off your first order for a limited time at Betabrand.com slash Murderish. Find out why women are ditching typical work pants for Betabrand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants. Go to Betabrand.com slash Murderish for 25% off. Avoid the post office holiday madness and use Stamps.com to ship all of your packages. With Stamps.com, the entire shipping process is done from your computer. Just print official U.S. postage from your home or office printer and schedule a pickup or you can drop your package off. Also, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts like five cents off first-class stamps, up to 40% off priority mail, and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Yeah, you heard that right. You can ship UPS with your Stamps.com account. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There is no risk. With my promo code MURDERISH, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MURDERISH. That's Stamps.com, enter MURDERISH. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Unfortunately, Dorothy's case eventually went cold. The frequent disturbing calls were monitored, but no useful information could be gleaned from them. It wasn't until Dorothy's body was found that any new information would be added to her case file. When her remains were discovered in 1984, buried underneath a dog, Dorothy's cold case was resurrected. Medical examiners attempted to determine a cause of death but because of the severe decomposition, obvious brushfire burns, and only having a partial skeleton, no conclusion on her cause of death was reached. Additionally, the ring and watch found near her body, and assumed to belong to Dorothy, had no lingering DNA that could be tested. The watch had been stopped on May 29, 1980, at 12.30 a.m., the time and day which authorities believe Dorothy was murdered. Throughout the investigation, many people were considered suspects. The first person who authorities looked into was Dorothy's ex and Sean's father, Dennis. Dennis lived in Missouri and could be accounted for at the time of Dorothy's disappearance. It was clear there was no form of air travel that could get Dennis from Missouri to Anaheim, California and back within the time frame needed for him to be the perpetrator. Aside from this, there was also no motive for Dennis to murder his ex-girlfriend. He had no involvement in his son's life, and he was not being asked for any form of child support by Dorothy. Dennis was quickly removed from the suspect list. There was another man who struck police as a person of interest, but who only had circumstantial evidence linking him to Dorothy. The man's name was Michael Butler. Butler had, at one time, owned the head shop where Dorothy worked before selling it to Jacob Scott and his business partner. At the time that she began receiving phone calls, Dorothy was working with Butler's sister, Rosemary Ann Butler, who later became famous through her music career. Both Dorothy and Rosemary were backroom secretaries at the time. At the time, they worked together. This could possibly account for how Michael Butler would know Dorothy's schedule so well, since his sister's schedule would be nearly identical during working hours. The other suspicious piece is that while Dorothy was working at the head shop, Butler was working at an automotive repair shop directly across the street, giving him a perfect view of Dorothy's working environment. There were other strange aspects to Butler's behavior and lifestyle that caused a cloud of suspicion to hover over him. He lived alone in the Santiago Mountains, where he led a secluded mountain man-type lifestyle. Though this information was not corroborated by Butler himself, a few colleagues of his noted that he did seem to be oddly attached to Dorothy. Despite her not really paying much attention to him, or even really knowing who he was. It was also reported that Butler was heavily involved in cult activity, though again, this was denied by Butler during interrogations. Initially, authorities were under the impression that Dorothy was buried beneath a dog in an attempt to hide her body from any search dogs that may go over the area. The idea was that search dogs would alert to a body, their handlers would uncover the skeleton of a dog, and the area would be labeled as a false positive, despite the human body being buried only a few feet deeper than that of the dog. Though this was initially believed to be the motivation in Dorothy's case, some authorities began to theorize that perhaps the dog was part of a cult ritual with which Butler was involved, especially since the dog bones were mixed in with Dorothy's bones instead of being separated by at least a couple feet of dirt. There were many coincidences that connected Butler to Dorothy, however, nothing was ever concrete enough to consider him a top suspect. Despite this, Butler remained a person of interest for years and would be called in for questioning any time a new piece of evidence or information was uncovered in Dorothy's case. Dorothy's son, Sean Scott, was and still is convinced that Michael Butler is the man who stalked, abducted and murdered his mother. Sean wholly believes that Butler created a fantasy world in which he and Dorothy were madly in love, and whenever she did something to contradict that, Butler was infuriated. Sean believes that Butler, tired of only being able to look at Dorothy and not being able to be with her, followed her out to the parking lot of the hospital, saw a chance to approach her while she was alone, and when his advances were rejected, he abducted her. Dorothy could not live up to the fantasy that Butler had created in his mind, and out of anger and jealousy, Sean believes that Butler murdered his mother. While this theory is one that makes some sense, there was no hard evidence linking Butler to Dorothy in any significant way. Then, 34 long years after Dorothy disappeared, her case would take a frustrating turn. In 2014, Michael Butler died from terminal health issues, taking any information he may have had about Dorothy to his grave. After Dorothy's remains were found, her family was finally able to hold a memorial service for her. The memorial was bittersweet. Loved ones were relieved to have recovered Dorothy's remains, yet grief-stricken over their tremendous loss. The memorial service, held at Forest Lawn Memorial Park, featured an array of flowers and ribbons declaring Dorothy a beloved sister. One of Dorothy's brothers, Jim Scott, said a few words about his sister. He described her simply as someone who gives. She would give her time, her love, her money. She would give anything to anyone who asked. He said that Dorothy would give without concern for her own needs and limitations. Jim said that in her last hours, Dorothy was still giving and being more concerned for others than herself. He said that though he knows everyone is feeling the great weight of losing someone so special, Dorothy would want this time to be about giving and caring for others, and that is what Jim encouraged everybody to do. He ended by saying, Dorothy lives, maybe not in this body, but she lives. After Dorothy was laid to rest, her father was noted as saying, we've buried the grief, now we are going to start living like people ought to. Unfortunately, Dorothy's killer did not allow the Scott family to return to a normal life after they buried her. As before, the taunting calls continued to come into the Scott house every Wednesday afternoon while Vera was home alone. The phone calls consisted of the same taunts as they had in the prior years. Vera dutifully answered the phone, still hoping for pieces of information to slip, since authorities had long since stopped their attempts to trace the calls. The phone calls continued until one day. Dorothy's son Sean was home on a Wednesday afternoon when the phone rang. Sean answered the call saying, hello? There was no answer from the caller who paused and then hung up the phone. That phone call, answered by Sean Scott, would be the killer's last. He never rang the Scott home again. It seemed apparent that Dorothy's killer was only interested in speaking with Vera and that hearing Sean's voice on the other end of the phone spooked him, enough to end his long reign of terror over the Scott family. There are a few theories as to why Dorothy's killer stopped calling the Scott house. The first is that Sean may have known the caller, and would have been able to identify him, and that spooked the killer. The second theory is that the killer, hearing the voice of a young man he did not recognize, may have thought the Scots had moved away. Regardless of the reason, Vera Scott was relieved when the torturous phone calls had finally ended. When Dorothy's remains were found, many people were worried about what would happen to young Sean. Many of her friends and acquaintances from work and church offered to adopt him. Vera Scott, however, was not at all interested in that happening. Jacob and Vera welcomed their grandson into their home and took care of Sean for the rest of their lives. Jacob Scott lived to be 69 years old and passed away on April 23, 1994, on what would have been Dorothy's 46th birthday. This coincidence has caused people to speculate that his death was caused by grief. Vera Scott passed away eight years later in 2002. Sadly, Dorothy's parents both died without ever learning who was responsible for their daughter's murder. Sean Scott has said he doesn't remember much about his mother, but he does recall that he was incredibly loved by her. He has been able to keep her memory alive with the help of loving stories his family has told him about his mother throughout his life. Today... Dorothy's case remains cold as no new significant leads or persons of interest have come to light in decades. Sean Scott continues to fight for justice in his mother's case, though he still firmly believes that Michael Butler, who died in 2014, is the man responsible for his mother's murder. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough of the show, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have a lot of fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. I've been doing a lot of interactive Q&As on IG stories, so follow me there at MurderishPodcast if you want to participate. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. Stick around after the closing music to hear a promo for an award-winning true crime podcast called True Crime Deadline. Hit subscribe while you're listening. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
1: I'm Matt Johnson, boots on the ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the award-winning podcast back for Season 2.
0: Hi, I'm Carrie Rosson, and I'm the daughter of the BTK serial killer. My name is Chris Bedretti, and I am a survivor of the Golden State Killer.
1: Each week, we dive into a new crime and give you new details you won't hear anywhere else. They're saying this is a suicide. That's bullshit. What is your message to the person responsible?
0: I hope that you know that we're going to catch you.
1: Season two has everything from the Tiger King case. I don't know if Carol Baskin pulled the trigger
0: or committed the, the murder of Don Lewis.
1: To the one case I have never really opened up about. Until now, I was witness to a state execution of a convicted killer. And Lawrence Caldwell had it in his mind that he was going to kill this person. He just wanted to know what it was like. So if you like true crime, hit subscribe and join me each week. Buckle up, investigators. You're on Deadline. More information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com.
0: Sources for this episode include a March 17th, 2018 article by Craig Berry at truecrimearticles.com, a September 25th, 2019 article by Adam Bradley at unsolvedcasebook.com, a March 5th, 2020 blog by Natalie DeGroote at TalkMurderWithMe.com. An October 2, 2019 article by Kirsten Hasty at TrueCrimeSociety.com. An October 11, 2018 article in The Claremont Sun by Mark Hoover. A January 22, 2018 article by Brenda Thornlow at Medium.com. A passion blog dated March 26, 2020 called The Unsolved Murder of Dorothy Jane Scott a 2019 blog at crimeblogger1983.blogspot.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.